I tell people all the time that think about money like a hammer. Like if we told people you're inherently valuable just because you have a hammer in your hand, they'd be like, that's silly. Like, what am I doing with this hammer? Am I building a birdhouse or am I murdering someone with it, right? Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-Word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. It is the year 2023. I am looking forward to this year's guest conversations and all the insights that will come from these wonderful conversations. And I want to say a big thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in each week to hear the insights that my guests share with all of us. This has been a wonderful experience for me, and I hope you, as the listener, are finding just as much as value as I am. Speaking of finding value, if you have found these conversations to be valuable, I would love if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, as they definitely do help bring wonderful guests on the show. In today's episode, the first episode of 2023, we are joined by Christina Blacken. She's a public speaker, performer, and founder of The New Quo. The New Quo is a leadership development and equity consultancy helping leaders create equitable practices, habits, and goals through their narrative intelligence. The majority of our conversation today is around narrative intelligence and how we can rewrite our financial narratives once we start to unpack and untangle our complicated money stories. We discuss how to identify and challenge the social and cultural narratives that shape our beliefs around money and how to use narrative intelligence to shift our financial narratives and create goals that are aligned with our values and equitable for all. We talk about building a positive self-concept as it allows us to deepen our relationship with ourselves and with our money. And make sure you tune in all the way to the end as RootHub our instant anthem music collaborator joins at the end to write an instant song for Christina based on this conversation. Rudhub is a wizard. He's amazing at telling stories through songs, and he does that for Christina today. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Christina Blacken. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for agreeing to come on the show. I really was fascinated with all your work in our, maybe not, I guess it's work, but also your interest in stories and the influence that stories have. For many of us, and we've often talked about this on the show, is that it doesn't matter which part of the globe you're from or from ancient times to like right now. Humans, we've always loved to tell and take in stories. And evolution psychologists have actually said that perhaps from an evolutionary perspective, 
storytelling has been our survival skills as a species as we've been able to preserve cultures, share stories, and share key messages from elders in our own cultures of the important life lessons. So I think we have this undeniable attraction towards stories, but often understanding our own story could be confusing, disorganized, and complex. And that's why I thought it'd be fascinating to have you come on the show today to talk about your perspective around the narratives we tell ourselves. So I thought we would start, though, with something that we talk to a lot of guests is our own money stories. So we all have these stories that we either heard overtly or we assumed by just reading the room as children, and then that extends into school or neighborhoods and so forth. So when you reflect back, Christina, on your upbringing, how, if anything, did growing up in Utah influence your money story and the stories you were telling yourself at that time about money? How much time you got? Because it's a long story. Well, it started off, honestly, as a kid. My mom was a single parent. She was married for seven years, divorced, and had two younger siblings. And I remember her being very cautious on how she talked about money when it came to maybe some of the stresses she was under. Because being a single mom and raising three kids and being a working class individual is extremely difficult. So she was very positive around figuring things out, being very resilient and crafty and thrifty with how she stretched her money. So I didn't really feel a a huge sense of lack, but I always knew that money was sort of difficult to get, was kind of the early stories, because it was true. She was working extremely long hours. She ended up going into the aerospace industry and literally machining jet engines because it was the most well-paying industry that she could get access to in Utah at that time with their education level. And she worked really, really hard to gain an okay amount of income that then had to stretch for three children and household. And so I was like, okay, it's important to make enough money to pay your bills and survive. But there was no narratives outside of that. It was really about survival and about being creative and thrifty if we could. So when I was younger, I was being really creative with my clothes and figuring out ways to stretch my wardrobe and wearing, you know, shirts as dresses and fun things that you wouldn't realize like, oh, she doesn't have a huge wardrobe, but she's still creative and has a sense of fashion flair because we didn't have tons of money to buy new clothes all the time. We were buying clothes seasonally and had enough of what we needed, but I was doing creative, ingenuitive sort of stuff at a young age because I'm like, if I can make it myself or stretch the things I already have, then great. I don't need additional money to get what I need. It sounds like your your mom was uh, an instrumental part of developing, I guess, your story around money even today. I would say so. Yeah, I think watching her, like she tells this really funny story about how she wanted to buy new furniture for the home that we were living in. And so she went to this local furniture store and she found a bedroom and sort of a living room set that was beautiful. It was all the matching end tables and the main coffee table. And they had put a price on there that just seemed unbelievable. It was like $700 or something for the entire set with the label on there. So she goes to the sales associate and she's like, I'd love to buy that living room set in the corner. It says $700. That sounds unbelievable. It's amazing. And the sales associate goes, oh, I'm so sorry. That's a wrong label. That's actually just meant for one piece in that entire set. It's actually double that price. And so my mom told him saying, hey, if I could do a plan with you and pay off over time, like, is there a way I could still get this furniture set? And the sales associate was able to be flexible with her and creative because she was so persuasive. And he's like, we normally don't do that, but I'll make this deal with you personally. And we'll keep the set, you know, maybe 20% off what it would normally would have been. So my mom was like creative and being able to negotiate 
and find ways around their traditional financing policies to get access to furniture that we needed. And I just thought it was so funny. I'm like, you made a full layaway plan at this company that normally doesn't do it. She was like, yeah, because I just told them, hey, I have three kids. I have a single income. I really need new furniture. Is there any way I can make a plan and I'll come in every week and do X, Y, and Z financially to make sure the set's paid off? So I learned those kinds of things from her, which is, you know, obviously work hard, do what you can. But if you can be creative to find ways to get resources, then, then try it. You know, as you're explaining your mother and her, her creativity, I can't help but think about your company called The New Quo, which I'll let you talk about. But from what I understand, it's looking at the status quo and examining it and seeing if we could use, as the term you like to use, narrative intelligence to see different ways of being. It really sounds like your mom maybe planted the seed of challenging the status quo way back when she was buying this furniture set as she asked the sales associate for something that was completely against the status quo. Not against, but beyond the status quo. Yeah. Do, you, do you see a linkage between what you've learned for your mother and what, what you've created now? I think so, because, you know, I grew up as what I call an extreme minority. I was racially, religiously, and politically a minority in the, the community that I grew up in. And I learned very quickly that narrative around what we learn from media, entertainment, religious institutions, our families of origin, deeply shaped how we see people who are not like ourselves. And so that was fascinating to me. People would hear stories and things on TV, and then they would act out those beliefs in person. And that really inspired a lot of the work that I do with the new quo, which is how do we identify the social and cultural narratives that shape our current beliefs? Because your beliefs drive the goals that you set, the things that you do, the things that you say, the relationships you build, but a lot of it's subconscious. There's actually studies by neurobiologists that say about 50% of all of your daily habits are automatic and not really conscious because we code all these patterns for ourselves. So really my plan and what I teach organizations and company leaders specifically is how you can use narrative intelligence to shift internal narratives that might be in the way of your full potential or goals that are actually more equitable, impactful, and aligned with your personal values. And if I hadn't had those early experiences of seeing how narrative can be destructive, how it can lead to bias and hatred and racism and sexism and all these other things, I don't think I would have been as motivated maybe to question the status quo as much as I do, especially because I think there are new narratives that we can create that can serve so many of us in a fuller way, every single person. And my family and my mom obviously played some role in that because of their experiences growing up similarly to me. And as I watched them try to make a way in the world that had lots of negative narratives about who they are and who they should be, I was inspired by how they still were resilient and was able to make a way out of no way, quite honestly. Wow. Make a way of no way. So as we're aspiring to create these new narratives or challenge the status quo, I think often, especially when we have the societal beliefs that you talk about, these societal narratives, we're met with internal resistance or internal discomfort because we're going against the grain and people might criticize, people might even come across as judging. When you reflect back on your, your really incredible story, which I, I really liked how you outlined it on your website, but when you reflect back, how did you meet this discomfort that was inside of you? I'm sure there was this voice that said, Christina, what are you doing? Christina, who's <laughs> going to listen? And mm -hmm. I think this is a, a universal conversation all of us have, except sometimes it scares us and we don't go into doing the work like you did. Yeah, well, my first experiences where I'll never forget we were going to a restaurant when I was probably like 12 years old and my siblings are three and five years younger than me. 
And when we would go to restaurants as a family who are Black individuals, and there's few of us in the community I grew up in, people would stare at us. So we'd go sit down and the heads were swiveling and the stares were piercing and kind of judging and maybe a little fearful. And I remember my mom saying to me, she's like, you know, they stare because you're a star. This has nothing to do with who you are and feeling some sort of way or feeling othered. Realize that you have power and there's power in being different. And those early lessons were really, you know, instrumental for me to create my own internal narratives of self-worth that were not based on the fleeting and limiting narratives that were taught about worth. We're taught very early if you don't look a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain size, have a certain skin color or hair texture or sexual orientation or religious affiliation, you're not worthy of resources, of having a voice, of making decisions. Those lessons become really early lessons. And so I had to think about those stories and think, wait a minute, these are wrong and incorrect. And I don't have to internalize these things as my own self-worth. But I had to do a lot of reflection, a lot of practicing and finding inspiration and ideas and education and community that could affirm a new internal story that I made for myself. And obviously, as I've gotten older, done a lot of therapy, read a lot of self-help books, studied psychology, I became stronger and stronger in what's called my self-concept, which is a psychological term I recently discovered. And it's the idea that fulfillment in life is really about self-awareness, self-alignment, and self-acceptance. So self-awareness is like, what are the patterns and beliefs that I have? How do they affect how I show up, how I communicate, how I react to things? Self-acceptance is accepting those parts of myself who might be seen as other or strange or judged in society. And then self-alignment is getting clear on here are my values and here's how my life externally reflects those values with what I buy, with the relationships I build, with how I talk to people. And so being able to do all those things was really how I've been able to take my life story and find strength when I've been in spaces where I've been an only, where I've been the only voice or the only perspective or the only experience. And it's not always easy. There are times where you're like, damn, this is rough. It's hard to sometimes be that person who's distinctly different in a group. But at the same time, there's so much strength that can be gained from a perspective and an experience that's different that can teach others and connect with others because we still have universal experiences, even if we're very different. So I think it's important to, one, for anybody, whether you're marginalized or you haven't experienced a lot of marginalization, finding your own internal self-worth that's not based on fleeting things and material things that can come and go and disappear is incredibly important for well-being and for having a purposeful life. The other side of it is honestly realizing that narratives can change, they can shift, they're not permanent, they're not fatalistic. And so if there's societal stories you grew up with that you feel really limited and oppressed by, you can let those go. But it takes time to reflect and reframe those things in your life. And I teach that in my trainings. You know, I've trained around, I think it's 11,500 leaders across nine industries. And really the, the underpinning of my educational experiences that I teach are the psychology of bias and how it shows up in our lives and how it affects our relationships. And then how narrative can be a tool for self-transformation, for sharing ideas with more impact and more influence and achieving goals that are actually equitable. And equity to me is a redistribution of power and resources so that we all can have the best outcomes and the best futures possible for the most people. And so for my work, it's really teaching people, let go of narratives that are crusty and dusty and not serving you. Think about the narratives that are going to motivate you to reach a new kind of normal, a new sort of goal that you can feel proud of. My body is experiencing so many different feelings after that answer. Thank you. That was... <laughs> you got the tingles going on. I do. 
I do. <laughs> I can I can hear the work of you building this inner self or self-concept through the word choice, but even the tone that you hold as you explain this self-concept. You know, as you were talking about the parts of you, it makes me think of Carl Jung and how he talks about how most people, most of our questions on suffering arise out of the distress that humans feel about the negative sides of ourselves. And he goes on to talk about how though, like people, we will do anything no matter how absurd in order to avoid facing our own souls. But he's, he's, his big belief is one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. And as you explained through the self-concept idea of self-awareness, self-acceptance and alignment, it really sounds like you were, you were embracing, if you want to call it the dark, bringing the darkness conscious to your story. And I can imagine that just opens up so many different possibilities to reimagine, as you talked about, using narrative as a tool to reimagine the way things are. You talked about narrative being as a tool. How have we perhaps used money as an incorrect tool to create narratives that decrease equity amongst people that project that if you have money, you know, you've got power or you actually do have power, but there's this like false sense of power. So how has money, in your perspective, been used as an improper tool, I guess? I love that question. I have a comment about the other thing you said about the darkness coming to the surface, because there is this sort of, I guess you could call it a sociology study that I reference a lot in some of my trainings. And it was by a organizational psychologist named Tina Kiefer. And she was working with a group of business executives who had wanted to learn about leadership, but they spoke a different language than she did. So she was like, well, we can do interactive activity where they can learn and we can cross a sort of language barrier. So she asked all of them, I want you to draw what an ideal leader looks like and didn't give them any other parameters or directives to do it. So at the end of the class, as she's collecting these drawings of what leaders look like to this group of business executives, a majority of them drew pictures of people who had male features, who were wearing suits. A lot of them had lighter skin and straight hair. And she was shocked because she all she said was, what does an ideal leader look like? So then her and another a group of researchers decided to replicate the study dozens of times with other groups, with other demographics, and they found across the board a majority of these people when asked, what does an ideal leader look like, drew a man and drew somebody with phenotypically specific features and hair and skin color. And so they started to unpack it and they realized that there was this really cemented subconscious narrative from the societal structures we have around us. I mean, most demographics were barred from leadership and political positions and all of that, literally by law. And so recently, there are certain groups that couldn't vote until very recently, until the certain movements and policies. And those subconscious ideas then affect what people believe about leadership. Either if you're from those demographics that aren't typically in leadership, you might not believe you could ever be a leader. And on the other side, you might not even realize that you might be underdeveloping and underappreciating certain talent because it doesn't look a certain way or talk a certain way. And so my power really and my strength in what I teach is bringing that to the conscious because you can't change a problem if you don't know that it exists. So I think that's really powerful what you said about how do we keep bringing the dark to light so that we can change it and shift it over time, which also leads to your second question about money. I tell people all the time that think about money like a hammer. Like if we told people you're inherently valuable just because you have a hammer in your hand, They'd be like, that's silly. Like, what am I doing with this hammer? Am I building a birdhouse or am I murdering someone with it, right? 
So it's a tool and what you do with that tool can have significant impacts. And I think there's a lot of narratives around hoarding money as a valuable trait in and of itself. So just having lots of it sitting somewhere, not doing anything useful, not being expressed in terms of your values is a narrative that's super destructive because not only does it lead to lots of inequalities and imbalances. So for example, most Fortune 500 companies, they hoard the wealth for maybe the top 10% of the organization and the 90% underneath the laborers get very little in return in terms of economic, you know, compensation and policies and treatment as laborers. So there's something there where we think hoarding is okay. If I told you I had 50,000 pairs of shoes sitting in a room just to sit there, you'd be like, that's insane. What do you mean you're doing that? Like, mm-hmm. the, I don't know if you've ever heard the show Hoarders. It's a popular yeah. show in the United States on TLC. It is literally about how hoarding is a psychological issue and is not seen as valuable. The only time that we think hoarding is interesting or valuable is with money. And so I tell people that hoarding wealth is not necessarily a positive thing. It's negative for the person who's hoarding it. It's negative for the people who it's being hoarded from. The other idea is this concept of your value and your worth as an individual is reflective in your bank account. So you as a person are inherently more worthy and valuable and smart and accomplished and have hardworking attributes because you have more money. And we know that's not necessarily true. Sometimes there's a birth lottery. You're born into a wealthy family. You just happen to be born there. Or you might be born into poverty. You didn't choose, you didn't roll the dice as a little embryo and be like, yeah, I'm choosing that path. Like you had no idea. So this idea of being inherently a specific way or having certain characteristics just because of your finances is not only false, and there's lots of data that disproves that, but also it leads to a ton of inequality where we judge people who have certain levels of income and see certain inequitable structures that have been designed as character flaws and as individual failings. When many times, especially I'm thinking about, you know, the U.S. is where I'm from and that's where I have the most expertise in terms of economics and policies. There were so many policies and practices that literally designed people into poverty. Like if you think of redlining, which was the practice of banks and federal institutions, barring certain demographics from having loans for homes and getting access to capital so they can have home ownership. That started in maybe like the 1920s and went on for many decades. 75 years later, those same towns and cities are still in poverty. 75% of them. Not because they're lazy, not because they have some inherent character flaw, because of legal policy. So I think people need to, one, improve what I call historical amnesia, which is understanding what has happened in the past that has made the present the way it is. And two, questioning what are the subconscious ideas and narratives that I believe about money that can not only hold me back, but also shape how I interact with others based on their class status or their income level. And how is that serving me or holding me back from my fullest potential and and better relationships? Because if we don't do that, there's a lot of people who are striving for this infinite growth goal of like, let me get as much money as possible. And they're still deeply unhappy. So there's something going on here where that is not actually a solve for a well-lived life, even though we're teaching people that that's the thing you should strive for in your career and in the way you design your life. I just want to say, keep going. I enjoy listening to you. (laughs) What you're touching on here really speaks to me. And I'm super curious about the value we get from examining our unexamined stories. and. It seems to me, maybe it's these unexamined stories that have us living in fear or scarcity that creates this hoarding mentality. At the top of this episode, we talked about how stories were evolutionary survival skill. Thinking back to our ancestors, if people started hoarding food when the tribe was trying to eat, we wouldn't have made it. We wouldn't have made it. 
And yet, yeah, you're you're right. It, it, money is the one thing that it's praised to some degree from this narrative to hoard, but yet it creates inequalities. It creates a scarcity mindset where we're, you know, we're not focused on equality and even doing the work that allows us to recognize that neighborhoods have been impacted for 75 years by these systems. I guess what I'm trying to say is when we don't examine ourselves to see our own beliefs, we can't even understand what shoes other people have walked in. And then, you know, we, we don't start to make changes in companies that start to have a more diverse leadership team, which prevents and stifles extremes amount of creativity and possibilities. So I just really appreciate what you're doing. Well, I love that. Thank you so much for, you know, saying that and, and recognizing these ideas. One thing that just came to mind that you brought up around innovation and creativity is no one really thinks about the cost of these narratives because there is a cost. There's a psychological cost. There's an economic cost. There's a resources cost where everyone is giving up something and suffering in some way. And I think there's two specific cultural narratives that are pretty pervasive with our common economic structures globally, at least in developed company or organizations in developed countries, which is the idea of the zero-sum game. So zero-sum games and zero-sum narratives are about the idea we have limited resources. And so some of us deserve those resources more than others. And if one group gains resources, another group loses. Now, this is a narrative that's pretty pervasive in certain political circles and for certain platforms where people are using a fear-based scarcity model of messaging to get people to feel like equality is actually detrimental to your well-being. So you're like, equality is bad, y'all. We ain't got a lot. So we should hoard it and fight. Whoever deserves it the most should get it, right? That's literally being taught. The other thing is the concept of hyper-competition. So zero-sum games lead to hyper-competition because you can't trust individuals and collaborate with them since there's so little resources. So for operating under those cultural stories, it leads to less creativity. It leads to less innovation. And it leads to less problem solving, which we desperately need. The amount of problems that is facing us as a human species is significant. And we're all talking about it. We're all on Twitter and social media lamenting about it and doomsday scrolling and stuff. And I'm like, we can get to literally freeing up our minds and our critical thinking capabilities when we move away from a model of hyper-competition and zero-sum games. And think of collaboration as a way to all combine our unique strengths to achieve goals that benefit all of us. But we have to let go of those old narratives first before we're able to actually do that. Yeah, it, it seems like we need to have this new story to shed the old story. We need the curiosity to really dive in and do the hard work. But also we need this new story to step into to give us something to to move towards. I keep hearing the outcome of the the difficult work that you've done on the different parts of yourself where it seems like, I think it's a lifelong work, but where you start to piece together different parts of yourself with different needs and start to recognize how you can move them to be your whole self. And I think when we're in that whole self, and that's what I'm really hearing you is through this narrative intelligence, we can start to understand the parts of us to piece together this whole story that allow us to then see the bigger picture. And I read on your website something that really, to me, stood out as seeing you do the work on yourself. And it's when you said, I'm quoting you here, is you can stand in and respect my own truth without shame. And I felt like this is a perfect example of using this narrative intelligence on how you can, in your words, stand in and respect my own truth without shame. As you, as you hear that and reflect back on the, how you've utilized narrative intelligence, 
How did you cultivate the courage to actually stand in and respect your own truth without shame? I love this question. Shame is a really powerful emotion. And Brene Brown, who's a researcher, has become pretty famous. She's got a Netflix special. She's made it. She has this wonderful book that changed my life that's called, I think, The Gift of Imperfection. And in that book, it talks about how motivating shame is because we are trying to avoid it so much that we will show up inauthentically. We'll choose lives that really feel and not good for us, but we're afraid of the outcome and the alternative. And we stifle how we really feel and what we really want because we're afraid of judgment. And after reading that book, it really helped me to understand that power is actually vulnerability and power is knowing that not everyone is going to accept everything about you or your experience or your perspective, but that's not really the goal. The goal is sort of to find values aligned individuals who can affirm and support you and help you to continue moving forward and speaking your truth, because that's going to be sort of a beacon for other people to be attracted and to show up in a way that's not fear-driven, that's not scarcity-driven, which is much better because we're able to actually create and innovate in all those ways I was saying earlier when people feel safe. And you can't feel safe unless you're speaking truths that people can accept and support. So a lot of my experience was really just reframing some stories that I had shame around, like being from a certain sort of background or having low income and and actually reframing that as there were certain things that were out of my control that created challenges and barriers in my life, but it's also giving me strengths and resilience and insight that others may not have. And I'm glad I was able to take lessons from those challenges and I can apply those lessons as wisdom in the future. So there's a reframing instead of feeling I guess you can call it the comparison between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset, which is another psychology term. Obviously, you could tell I love psychology, but there are people who believe life is fatalistic. I have absolutely no control or choice on it, and there's nothing I can do to achieve the things I want to achieve. And a growth mindset is I can learn and I can try, and I have the ability to control what I think, what I say, maybe some of the stuff that I do. And as long as I'm striving towards that and eking more autonomy, I'm doing the right thing. And I think because I have a growth mindset, I was able to integrate my experiences and process them in a holistic way to know the good and the bad and the pros and the cons of those experiences. And then to see what are the redemptive lessons of those experiences that I can use to teach and to inspire others and to help my own you know, future self achieve new things because I'm not just being numb and detached from my own experience. You know, a lot of people are really numb to their own experiences. If you sat them down, they're like, I don't know. I don't have any idea about my personal life or my story or how I do things. I'm just kind of on autopilot. And I think one of the most powerful things any person can do is to make small amounts of space for self-reflection, whether that's daily walks, maybe you do meditation, maybe you journal, Maybe you talk into a voice memo or something, but we have very little time for self-reflection and self-insight. I do think that's purposeful because the more self-awareness you have, the more likely you are going to speak truths that might shake the status quo and raise the people in power don't like and don't want. So being able to take even just five minutes a day to your own self-reflection can radically change your life and it can change the stories that you're attaching to your experiences. We get to attach stories to things. You know, for example, I recently had some really challenging things happening in my family. And as it was occurring, you know, it was frustrating. It was sad. And like, I was really thinking about the stories I was attaching to that experience. And it was really just, hey, this is a hard time. It's unfortunate. And I'm doing the best that I can with the resources that I have. And that's all I can do. Instead of saying, this is so unfair. And how can life be like this? And 
I can't believe it. There's nothing I can do if I had attached those kind of bombastic, catastrophizing stories to the experience. I wouldn't have been able to survive it. So I think it's important for us to analyze what meaning are we attaching to things? Because that's all narrative is. And a lot of times events are neutral until you attach a story to it. Just certainly can see this, again, the work you've done around narrative on being able to like detach yourself from the narrative in itself, realizing that you created it. It makes me think your story here talking about what meaning are we attaching it and how can we use that to do something else? It, I can't remember where I read this, but I understand that you went to work for a law firm in New York City. And instead of becoming just numb to the outdated narrative that existed there, you, and I think I, I wrote down this, as, I believe it's your, your words, is when I see injustice, it helps me spark creativity to solve the problems. So what, I, what I'm linking these two is, I thought it was interesting how you didn't just become numb to these outdated narratives in the law firm. Instead, you went off and used that as a tool to, I believe, begin your entrepreneurship journey on social change. So can you maybe talk about that situation or similar ones where you used outdated narratives to spark your creativity to solve complex problems? Yeah, that's a great question. So I can track back a little bit to my journey of getting from Utah to New York. So I ended up getting into Cornell University, which put me from Utah in New York State. And I loved it. I was like, oh, look at this, you know, state school. I didn't really know a lot about Cornell. And I learned as I was there. But I realized that I wanted to live in a city after graduating, and I was looking between Washington, D.C. and New York City. At the time, I had aspirations. I knew I wanted to do something socially impactful, and I kept thinking law because, you know, the policies and legal things that revolve around us shape our lives pretty deeply and personally. So I thought the law world would make sense. So one of my first jobs out of college was at a really prestigious law firm. I mean, this law firm had a crazy track record. They were involved in, like, the civil rights movement. They just had all these really incredible milestone historic cases. So I was like, yeah, this is amazing. I mean, go in there, change the world, one legal brief at a time. It's going to be great. <laughs> and then I got into the actual culture of a law firm. And anyone who's listening that has been a lawyer or knows a lawyer knows what I'm about to say. It is toxic as hell. It is so much about hierarchy, so much about status. And that was really disheartening to me. It wasn't about the work. It wasn't about impact. It was who's the most important, who has the biggest office, and how can we make sure that our lowly selves are out of the way, out of sight, out of mind, which felt so counter to my own values and how I want to work. And as I experienced all of that, I was working crazy hours. Like at one point I had 24 hour shifts and I'd come home in the same pencil skirt and my roommates who were my college friends at the time were like, are you still in the same clothes from yesterday? I'm like, yeah, they got us on those crazy hours. So I was realizing like, this is not the path that I chose. I didn't sacrifice and put in so much time and effort to graduate from school, to then go into a job where I'm doing things that feel really negative. And I'm in an environment where we are not valued holistically and developed in a way that can actually help this law firm achieve better things. And so seeing that, I started to just dig into the research. Why do companies operate the way they do? Where do culture practices and common business practices and leadership practices come from? Because I didn't know. I had just always worked since I was 16, but I didn't question how the structures were formed. I just came into the structure did my job and didn't ask a lot of questions. So I think it sparked for me, why does this exist the way it does? And maybe because I'm a curious person and I love learning. That was my first kind of, I guess, stepping into this idea of entrepreneurship, which is being insatiably curious about solving a problem. If you're really becoming an entrepreneur, 
It's because you see a problem that you can't stand in some way. You're like, this problem makes no sense. How do we find a solution to it? And the problem of how we organize ourselves inside of companies, how we think about leadership and power, that to me was a fascinating question. And so I moved from the law world into the nonprofit space because I thought that would be better, but that had a whole bunch of toxicity in it. Then I went into the media world for a while. And during that time, I started to build the new quill on the side as a part-time thing and eventually saved up what I called my FU fund, which was $20,000 from my job and then quit and went into the new quill full time. And so I had all these experiences of using narrative and storytelling in my jobs over that 10 year span of when I was in those four industries. And then I started to look into different research and psychology studies and my field work and made these tools and these frameworks on how do we create new norms, new policies, new practices that don't destroy people, that don't have to literally create inequality to exist. What is a new normal that we should strive for instead? And I did that because I experienced so much toxicity and terribleness in corporate America, quite honestly. And I worked my way up in some of those organizations and I was like, even the leaders, this is this is trash. Like even when you're in a leadership mm-hmm. position and the incentives you're given and what you're told you have to do in those jobs are really disheartening. So I think seeing, oh, this could be better. And we are teaching people that this is the end game for our lives. What needs to change here so that people can actually be valued, not only for what they can create in terms of profit, but the impacts they have on people and the planet and all that other stuff too, which is just as important. Christine, I just really appreciate your courage to to say your voice. And I'm so glad that you've been able to amplify that voice through through your business. And I know in the last number of years, you've been able to grow your business. You've been able to have more impact on, on leaders, which is great because, I mean, you're looking at almost a, a systems level when you're talking to the leaders, then it trickles down to all the people who are influenced. So we can see the impact that you're having. I understand that you, I think you were like asked to leave or I can't remember what the story was, but you parted away on a job and then you almost found yourself without a home. What would that version of, that version of Christina have to say to the Christina now who is having this impact with thousands of leaders who's creating a sustainable revenue? What would you, what would you say if you could go back to talk to that Christina? Yeah, that was around 2015. I had been working in a media company. I was abruptly let go. And the reasoning I was given is because I wasn't a fit, not because I wasn't good at my job or had done anything egregious, which was very honestly sketchy. I probably could have mm. had some sort of labor lawsuit, to be honest. But in that time frame, I had all this transition. I was moving into a new part of New York City from Queens to Brooklyn, and I had a lot of instability. And I remember thinking at the time, your worth is not reflected by the external things that you no longer have right now. You don't have the cushy media, fancy job. You don't have the apartment you would like to have. Your relationships are in transition, but you're still valuable. You're still a valuable, worthwhile human. And I would tell myself at that time, keep sticking to that and believing in that because that will change your life. Because if I had built my self-worth on all these external things that I ended up losing at the same time, I would have been in a pretty dire situation. And although it was hard, I wasn't happy about some of the places my life was at at that time, I knew that it was temporary and that I had the ability to turn things around and to live the life that I would want to live and to realize that I'll be okay. And I think that's a lesson in being able to create your own internal narrative about what your worth is. And I'm 
you know, proud of myself from that time period and leaning into it even more over time as I've shaped my own personal goals of the life that I live, which is really about impact and purpose and not just about the material gain and hoarding and all that stuff. So I was like, yeah, continue to let go of those societal narratives about success and what it should look like because you're going to be happier. And ironically, you're going to have more impact and success because you're creating your own path. Again, I appreciate your your work on this internal narrative. And you're making me think of when you said, I will be okay. How many, if we're talking about New York, how many high, uh, when I say high, unimaginable high salary people in the financial world in Wall Street, how many of them have had conversations with themselves this year when the markets have been doing terrible or in 2008 or you named the economic downturn year where they're telling themselves, I'm not going to be okay. When, when the markets take a dip with these strong narratives that they've attached that their self-worth is with the net worth, I, I don't think they're having that same conversation. I will be okay. And why I think your story and the work you're doing is so important is because underneath money, money is just this piece of paper, I guess, electronic now. It's all about the story, the internal narrative that we're telling ourselves that we attach to this money. And I just think it you said it so beautifully there is I will be okay when I let go of the social narratives. So as we come full circle, what meaning would Christina have attached to money today? The meaning I attach to money today is it's a tool for expressing your personal values. So I think it's important to understand what you value and then make sure your money reflects that. So if you value community, how is your money being invested in building the communities around you. If you care about beautiful aesthetics and having a certain serene environment that's good for your health, how does your money reflect that? And it's not that you have to have oodles of money to be able to express it a certain way. You get to choose outside of your bills how you're spending your money. And I think a lot of people spend money out of, again, fear and scarcity and I have to do this or I need to do that. Or, you know, I recently had a friend's sibling telling me that, you know, when you go out, in certain cities, you have to make sure you have a certain car and you've got to make sure you have certain clothes. And I'm like, who cares? I mean, if you don't value that, why strive for something for someone else's perspective and someone else's judgment? I'm going to build my money around what I value and make sure that I'm using it as a tool that I feel proud of. What's the legacy that I'm leaving behind? And if people could reframe that, they probably would be a lot happier because they'll stop spending on stuff they don't care about. And they'll start thinking about how they can manipulate or even move their money in ways that can have an impact they feel proud of. And I think that can start even if you don't have a lot of income. It could start earlier than people think. You don't have to be a billionaire to be intentional with your money. And in fact, I feel like a lot of people who don't have a lot of money are typically very intentional and very specific on how they spend it because they don't have a lot of it. So they have to pick and choose what really counts. You know, if I would rather spend my money on gathering people I love and how many experiences of that versus spending it on a pair of shoes I don't care about, for example. So I think that's a big thing for me is how am I constantly questioning not only how I gain money and the ways that I do it and if they're ethical and leaving a positive impact, but also how I spend it in ways that can reflect what I believe and what I care about. Thank you for that. I want to ask, because you, you, you clearly brought up this quote that your mother said to you that is really sticking with me. They stare because you are a star. How has that, if anything at all, continued to influence the work that you're doing? And just this idea that I keep hearing in you is that you have this incredible sense of agency or inner worth. 
Did that statement in such confidence, your mom would say that they stare because you're a star. How has that impacted you, if anything at all, all these years later? It definitely resonated because it was a way of reframing judgment and reframing stares and not being like delusional, but sort of being like, you know, you're interesting, you're unique, that you're drawing them because there's something to be looked at. And I think it's important for not to be ego driven and thinking you're better than other people because that's not healthy, but creating a narrative where you actually accept yourself. Genuinely, most people have really negative relationships and stories to themselves, no matter what they look like, no matter their background, their privileges. You set them down and listen to their inner voice. You'd be like, that inner voice is harsh. You need to kick that person to the curb because if they were a friend of yours, you'd be like, what's wrong with you? Why are you so rude? So I think that's a big part. It's like, what is the inner story about yourself? Do you actually like yourself? Do you accept yourself? Do you find parts of who you are, how you show up in the world, how you look valuable just because they are? And being able to be taught from a young age that your worth is not just solely shaped by other people's perspectives and projections. It's shaped by how you feel and how you show up in the world was such an important lesson for me. And, you know, there's been times I, everybody struggles with their self-esteem and their self-worth. And that's something I'm continuing to work on. And I think that's a lifelong journey. But the more that we can realize that solely basing self-worth on external things is one of the most dangerous things that you can do. And if you can create an internal narrative around my self-worth is just because I am alive, I am worthy of love and care and support and kindness and being able to express myself and, you know, have safety in my life, then you're going to be in a better place when you've hit adversity, when you do have setbacks, when you do lose things. Because if you don't have a place of strength, life is hard. Life's unpredictable. I call it a wave. There's going to be ups that are amazing. There'll be downs that you didn't expect. But having a consistent, stable, internal sense of self-worth is really how you survive the up and down of life. And people who base their self-esteem solely just on income have a fleeting thing that's real and stable with how they're perceiving themselves. And that's a really scary place to be. You know, this podcast is about money and money stories. And I think you just gave us one of the greatest lessons in around money. Sure, we could talk about how to maximize our portfolios and build huge investments accounts, which, have, you know, money makes life easier, but cultivating that inner self-worth. I mean, what, what a return on investment that is. Absolutely. So my final question for you is, let's assume you're at end of life and you're on a front porch looking out at somewhere that brings you peace. Could be anywhere. You feel a total ease and contentment and content with life. And you decide to write a letter on what you learned about the power of cultivating self-worth and embracing narratives, like the power that our society can have on by embracing self-worth and in embracing narratives, the stories we tell ourselves. What would be a theme to that letter? The theme would be that's where your power lies, because your power does lie in realizing that you have immense amounts of influence and creativity that can be expressed when you have clarity of what you believe in and what you care about, and you give yourself the time and space to actually express it and experiment with it without being afraid of the outcome. And I don't think people realize how much power is in that. That's why people who are unapologetically themselves get followings and platforms because people are inspired and gnawed by that. So much of our society teaches us that safety is conformity. And safety is just falling in line, doing the status quo, doing things that might be detrimental to your well-being 
And so if I was writing myself a letter, it would be, I'm a powerful person because I was able to accept and love myself despite the dozens of negative societal narratives that told me not to. And I think if more people could do that, we would have massive societal changes in terms of what we value, in terms of the goals that we set and the lives that we design and the modern structures we have, even the ways that we think about money and how we distribute money or how money is used to gain resources. All of that would shift pretty dramatically if people learn that power isn't about oppression or fighting people in the scarcity game. Power is this infinite amount of self-acceptance and expressing your strengths in ways that can uplift others and uplift yourself. Very well said. Christina, this has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast and for me to, to hear the wisdom and insights that you have gained over the years. For people listening who want to hear more of Christina, where would you point them towards? I have a few things. So I have a podcast myself that's about unconventional leadership and acts of creative courage or just personal courage from these individuals, which is called Sway Them in Color. We could put a link to that. You can also go to my website, which is thenewquo.com to look at my thought leadership and other papers I have. And I do have a white paper on narrative intelligence that's at bit.ly backslash new quote paper. And that gives a whole bunch of resources and data and app, real tools that you can use to start thinking about narrative intelligence in your own personal life, which whether you're in a company or a leader or not, it's really such an incredibly powerful practice to think about narrative for behavior change and for achieving goals that you feel good about. So those are the three places I would direct people to go. We'll definitely include those. And I did read the white paper. I found it incredibly uh, insightful. And I like the little model of change through stories that you had an image towards it and lots of great resources within that. And uh, I listened to a couple episodes on your podcast and I just really appreciate the the lens you're taking on that podcast. So I know you 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 talked about write, or what letter you would have write. And I, I think that was very well said. But I also believe you're a singer. Are you like music is a big part? What would you feel like if I said that the the person joining was actually writing a song based on everything that you just said and is about to <laughs> sing a song that you just wrote based on your conversation. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> so Christina Rudhub is going to come on and he is a musician that him and I have been collaborating on using music to, to share a story. And you just wrote a song. Hi. Hello. This is so amazing. Wow, this is so cool. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Um, so I've been here just receiving everything that y'all have been talking about. There's so many like bird sounds and stuff. Hopefully they don't interrupt too much what we're going to do. So with this instant anthem, you know, I've taken just kind of like everything that you've shared, distilling it into we've co-collaborate this song that doesn't exist until right now. So here we go. Watch. 
you have and you hold from the time of your birth does it go deeper than silver and gold i heard a story you heard a story is it your story is it mine narratives and allegories always Problem you don't know exists Or you resist reality Amnesia of history or Bring it to light Let go of the past And do the difficult math Oh, this is the path Or to move the equation Lift our situation Is it mine? All narratives and allegories can always be defined. Who you are is up to you. Oh, your fable strong, your legend true. Who you are. Your superpower hits so differently When you know who you are Oh, liberation, safe and free Yeah, they stare Because you're a star Your superpower hits so differently Because you know who you are Safe and free, oh I heard a story, you heard a story Is it the story, is it mine? I heard a story, oh you heard a story Is it your story, is it mine? I heard a story, oh you heard a story Thank you, Root Hub. <laughs> that is so impressive. Well, wow. That's talent. Okay. We just made that happen, though. Like, we made that story come true through communal effort, you know? And like, I so love much it. What, so much of what you're saying resonates, like, with values that I hold. And thank you for the work you're doing. And so it's so important. I'm well, thank you so am- much for <laughs> capturing it in such a beautiful musical way. And- yeah, everything you said and expressing your music is exactly the sentiments I was hoping to convey. So I'm 
So grateful to hear that back. And from the beautiful tropics, I could live vicariously right now. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, if you ever come to the come to Hawaii, come visit the farm. It's it's a really great place. Um, yeah, I'm just you know reflecting all of that and just amplifying. And um, yeah, thank you for letting me be a part of it. Yes, thank you. Well, thank you for playing along, Christina. Even though you never knew what was happening, and Rudhub, as always, thank you for for just listening and reflecting and putting those the messages in a form of a song. I I just I have a lot of admiration for the ability he has, Christina, and I'm so happy that you were able to experience his gifts to the world. World. Yeah, what a special moment. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I encourage you to check out Christina's podcast, Sway Them in Color, and her website, The New Quo, as she is doing some fascinating work. Before you head out, if you can head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review, that would mean a lot to me. I'm looking forward to the next wonderful conversations that we're going to have on this podcast throughout 2023. And if you have any recommendations for the show, please send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Until next week, have yourself a good one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sea.